Hello, and welcome to Turning Point, a new podcast series on leadership development growth from Vistage, the executive coaching organization dedicated to improving the effectiveness and enhancing the lives of our members. I'm Matthew Griffiths, a Vistage chair, business coach, and mentor, having been a CEO for companies both in the UK and the US over the past 30 or so years. This week, we're looking into how to maximize human potential, performance management. Unsurprisingly, this is a top concern among CEOs globally. Creating a high-performing company and driving profitability are the goals, but how do CEOs get there? Doing so helps determine strengths, weaknesses, and potential managerial gaps in the business and allows improvements to be made elsewhere. In 2017, 47% of Vistage members cited talent management as their biggest concern for SME leaders in the UK. With me today to discuss this is Tom Weaver, the current CEO of Flight. Flight has built a universal integration platform for the hospitality industry. The platform makes it simple and hassle-free for hospitality operators to adopt and install new guest-facing technology. Welcome to the podcast, Tom. Thank you very much for your time. Can I ask you to explain a little bit more about flight and pick up on the phraseology I use there about the current CEO? Because that might be all about to change, as I understand it. That's right, yes. So, I mean, we actually founded the business seven years ago as FlyPay. The original intention was to solve the hassle of paying for your dinner and a night out. How do you make it possible to pay for your food via an app instead of having to wave your arm around in the air and find a waiter and go through a very laborious process of handing over your money. As time went by, ironically, we found that the true value in what we built wasn't really the customer-facing technology ourselves, but actually the integration solutions that we had built to integrate with the point-of-sale technology in every restaurant turns out this is really hard to do and it turns out it is also a value to a lot of much bigger and more successful companies than we were. And so in 2016 we pivoted towards much more of a B2B solution that required massive changes at the time and subsequently in 2018, about a year ago, Just Eat, who were one of our investors at the time, decided to acquire the company. So we've spent the last year in the other side of the fence, really, being part of an acquisition, being in a scenario where we were set uh, very clear goals to go after and pursue. And in fact, there were three-year goals, but we made some big changes again, really, uh, in our model post-acquisition to figure out how we optimize ourselves, how we perform at our best. And we've now pretty much finished those three-year goals. We actually did it within about nine months. And so as a result, I've handed over to a new CEO, a new leadership team. We're in a transitionary phase. And very soon I'll be stepping out of the business and letting them go on. First of all, congratulations on hitting those milestones. But Thank you. it's great for the context of this conversation because clearly there has been an awful lot of change from a few years ago and where the original vision and and where the business was going to where you are now and clearly performance management has been a key element to all of that. So let's get into this with a definition that came across for performance management is that it's a process of ensuring the set of activities and outputs meets an organization's goals in an effective and efficient manner. Now, that's fine. That's a set of words. Probably doesn't mean anything on the page the way it is. We were talking just before we started recording and we 
probably both agree that actually when someone says the phrase performance management, it instinctively has a negative connotation, not only to whoever's managing, but also to the person being managed. But I'm fascinated. You see it differently to this, don't you? That's right. I mean, I think when I hear the words performance management, I often think really of the process by which somebody enters performance management, i.e. they are not performing at their job and we need them to. However, I think really we need to turn that on its head a little bit because everything really you're doing, certainly as a CEO of a company, as a senior leadership team, is about managing the performance of your team. And we like to think of this really as if this was kind of an elite team. Let's imagine it was a sports team. So let's treat an analogy which is outside of business for the moment. You know, performance management isn't being the captain on the pitch and pointing at where people should step and, and, and kick because you know that ultimately that only goes so far in terms of actually scaling a business. Performance management is being able to, to set a clear direction to know what your goal is, which is you know, maybe it's to win the championship, maybe it's to win the next match. It's to figure out how you build the right team on the pitch, get the best players you can possibly afford, how you invest in them and train them up and make sure that they are doing the top of their ability and that the people surrounding them, the people off the pitch are also the best you can possibly find and that they're working really, really well. Uh, and that sometimes you're transferring people out that aren't the right people or you're thinking about how you actually take on raw talent and get them to the right places. But ultimately, what you know is that as the coach, you're not going to be on the pitch all the time. You know, you're going to be at the sidelines. Maybe you've got multiple games happening at the same time. And you need to be able to trust that your team can perform well in those situations when you're not there to look over their shoulder. And that, for me, is the core of how performance management needs to really be, which is how do I get to a state which I can trust that my team will perform at their very best and knock all of our goals out of the park even if I'm not the one who stood there trying to nurture them along day by day. All right, so this is very much coming from the coach on the sideline, seeing the bigger picture, seeing a whole bunch of players, however many in front of them, and being able to think of tactics, strategy, some of which are changing minute by minute, actually, or month by month, certainly, uh, yeah. going forward. Yeah, I think so. I mean, certainly a core value for us, certainly in the last year as we uh, kind of post-acquisition, we realised that one of the things that we'd been missing, or one of the things we'd lost along the way, was a sense of autonomy in the way that people worked day by day. And it was what people craved most in their jobs to, to feel that they were in control of the work that they were doing. And as we flipped towards a model where we encouraged more autonomy within the business, what we also realized is that as senior leaders, we really had to draw a line between where we were pointing people to go and in telling them how to get there, i.e. we wanted them to take ownership over how to achieve the goals, make sure that we were setting the goals but not being too specific about the strategies and the tactics at a deeper level. And that became quite important. So again, I think in that sports analogy, you know, once that game's in progress, you know, you don't have the ability to always step in and be there in every situation. Mm. You've got to be able to trust that the team can work together and that they can make decisions that effectively they're taking the ball in their hands and driving it up the field on their own without you always being there all the time. Let's go back a few years, so to startup mode, because I'm guessing performance management in that context is different to when it was post-acquisition, post-merger, and driving for the new look in you know the last few months, as it were. 
So did you come with these views of performance management at startup time, or is this a thinking that's been evolved? Or, or what were the particular challenges at startup time that's led you to this approach? Yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely been an evolutionary process. One of the strange things about building a startup is you, when you start, you know, myself and my co-founder were the only people and we did 100% of the work. And see, we did multiple rounds of uh, fundraising and we raised a lot of money. And we use that money to employ other people to take some of that work away from us. And so there's something quite strange about starting where you're doing everything. And then effectively, everybody you hire should be hired to come up and take an element of that and do it better than you can do. You know, so I was never going to be the best finance person and marketeer and designer and the myriad of other jobs I did in the first eight, nine months of Startup Land. And we were able to find people who could come in and do those things better than I could. But obviously then managing a team and thinking about how they perform really well was very different when it was two of us, very different when it was six of us in a room, and then very different when it's, you know, as I say, today, people across the world, and we've got a remote first policy now. So we have people in, I mean, I've kind of lost count actually how many countries, and sometimes it's just one person in a you know, I've got one person in Brazil, for example, you know, and we've got people all over the place and not being directly face to face managed. Very, very different reality. And of course, there was an evolutionary journey between those two points. And so I think we had to reinvent ourselves multiple times and evolve our thinking as we made massive mistakes, which is normal, right? You make a huge mistake, you then correct it, you learn from that. And you get to a good point again, and then you make another mistake and, you know, you need to correct that. We all get there by failing, getting it wrong. You know, I'm sure every body listening to this that runs a business or is a leader have got horror stories of you know something that went horrendously wrong in terms of this so could you identify or put your finger on key traits that you need to have in your kit bag if we're going to follow that metaphor in helping you evolve that performance management or optimizing the talent strategy I mean I think we certainly the ability to take a hard look at what isn't working and the humility to accept that because there were times in fact just before we started working with Vistage back I think it was around 2015 we'd run a culture report we'd commissioned a consultancy to come in and actually really kind of dig into what was going on and it was a time in which I was getting a lot of pressure from our investors to move faster and our staff to move slower and so we as the founders have felt a lot of pressure stuck in between these two worlds and the culture report that came back was brutal. I mean, it was a bit like as if you were a father and your kids were criticizing you when they were all growing up. It was a very, very hard read. I think what Chris and I were always able to do quite well was to quickly react, and not in a knee-jerk way, but we were able to make considerate changes and enact them very quickly. I, we often felt that the biggest enemy that we would have was the inertia of trying to decide what to do and uh, you know making a long decision and so when when we needed to act we acted fast we had a philosophy that it was always better to kind of rip off the plaster and experience the pain and get it over with rather than spend a load of time worrying about it and building up a load of tension prior to that and does that have a knock-on effect to the staff themselves in as much as they begin to trust and see a consistency that whatever's going to happen and you know you alluded to it and we'll touch on it in a, a little bit that you clearly have fundamental organizational change at some point coming down the track but at least your approach to these things is going to be let's rip off that plaster get it done 
but you know the long game is this is for the better yeah every time we made a significant change people viewed it very very positively and and definitely appreciated almost the fact that we did take action it was always hard and you know often when you're getting rid of people when you're getting rid of the wrong people or you're you're simply just making a change you know that has to be quite fundamental about the way that you're working obviously people worry a lot for their jobs and it's natural and you do your best to take that away and so we always had a philosophy again that you know if there were times when we had to say goodbye to some people we would treat them with the most respect that we possibly could do and make their exit experience as easy as possible. I'm sure it was never easy, but we did our best. But our priorities always had to be with the people that were left behind. We you know, would put 10 times more energy into making sure that we'd thought about how do you communicate these changes? How do you make sure that everybody feels that everything that has been done has been done now, that there's not going to be a drip feed process over the next few weeks where we're going to see more people lose jobs or anything like that or more changes happen. Let's be very upfront. This is what's happened. Let's be very transparent about the reasons why as much as you can be. I think transparency always comes with some degree of limit, unfortunately, but you try and be as transparent as you can be. And then you make sure that everybody feels secure and safe and is able to talk about the experience as you move on. You bring up a word there, which I often hear as being a problem, which is that of communication. Mm. So everybody understands the concepts there. And, you know, and most times when you're talking about performance management, the average person, whilst they might not like the message, but they understand what you're doing. But where it goes wrong is the communication piece. Undoubtedly. I think it's obviously one of the hardest things to get right. And it's often, I think, because we struggle with how far to tell people and in, you can often see these things whether it's an inadequate message or simply being afraid as leaders to tell people that it was our fault that we failed in them in some way one of the most impactful books i think we ever read as a leadership team was extreme ownership it taught us a lot about being able to put up your hand and, and say look this is my fault this is something that we're doing badly and we're taking action for these reasons and not being afraid to show that vulnerability I think it's an important part of communicating with the team. All right. So the vulnerability piece that comes in, again, you know, the five dysfunctions of a team, the Lichani book, which I know is quite commonly read amongst the groups. So vulnerability is there. Communication is there. Transparency is there within limits mm -hmm. that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. So you're evolving this culture in the startup to growth mode of the organization and clearly very successful and this is being balanced against a lot of technology change, I would assume. There's a lot of moving parts going on here. So you're having to keep the performance management on point, if you will, and keep on top of that. And then all of a sudden we get into this acquisition mode. And that must change all the parameters, including that of performance management. Can you tell us a bit about that piece? Yeah, in a funny way, I guess I feel like we had our most successful year post-acquisition. And that's partly, I think, because we had a lot greater clarity about the key North Star we needed to be achieving. You know, in startup world, you're you're constantly trying to think about how you're going to win the world and therefore you're placing a lot of black chip bets and hoping that they're going to pay off, but you're not entirely sure which ones will ultimately, unless you're one of the very fortunate few startups that, you know, place one bet and it happens to pay off. And I don't know many of those really that exist. 
Whereas kind of in the post-acquisition world, we had a lot of clarity. We had a sense of, okay, we need to go and build a number of more integrations. We need to deploy those to a quantum of brands and sites globally, and we need to achieve a certain amount in revenue. And that clarity allowed us to actually organize ourselves very differently. So we went for the Spotify-esque model of tribes, squads, and guilds, where we effectively had three KPIs, a tribe of people per KPI. So everybody had a very clear North Star within their divisions, if you will, mm-hmm. and that each tribe would have multiple squads. And squads were multidisciplinary teams that had everybody that they needed within them to achieve their mission for the quarter. So they'd go on a quarterly plan, that quarterly plan would contribute towards that North Star KPI. The squads themselves had autonomy to achieve their mission. We would just set their missions. And they had no dependency on other teams. And this was really important for us. This was the, a massive differentiator because prior to that, there were times we just felt that we were in a log jam where commercial wanted one thing and product were trying to figure out how they order that and technology would decide when to build it and there'd be this tension in the business around that I need this done and it's my priority and not your priority. Well, when you build a small team that has product and engineers and commercial people within it, everybody you need, it becomes much easier to make a decision as to what work you should do because you've got a very clear mission. And that conversely therefore made performance management a lot easier as well because everybody knew what goals they were aiming for, everybody knew the mission of the team. We were able to allocate bonuses on a a squad-by-squad basis. Uh, We were able to task the squad leaders with managing their squad members, you know, and make sure that they empowered those and invested in those people and really did everything they can to make their lives a success. And effectively, that just worked really, really well. And as I say, it allowed us to achieve pretty much all of our three-year KPIs within nine months and that nine months included the three four months in which we weren't in this model and we were kind of experimenting with one of the KPIs in this approach and it was going so fast it encouraged us to test the move and and change the whole organization into this model. That's phenomenally successful I have to say. How did you come across this model? Is that something that for instance got picked up at group level when you're working within your Vistage group or is that something that got parachuted in someone mentioned it and you ran with it we were experimenting as we often do there's a sort of small group really that of senior leaders within the business that we were trying to to figure out what the best design of the organization could be and we're very very lucky our vp product at the time is now our chief product officer is one of these extraordinarily well-read individuals reads every single book out there and, and is incredibly intelligent and articulate about the potential of all of these different things and he'd come across the Spotify model and very strongly advocated for it and we trust him so we asked him to take a few weeks out of the business to take some time to think about how it could be designed and he put together a lot of key documents for us how to squad at flight how to guild at flight how to do this at flight you know a number of other guides really that we would need on the other side of things whilst we worked on the overarching plan as to how we were going to make the changes. And one of the big changes I think that we also had to make at the same time was this recognition that we'd somehow built up some middle management that was actually slowing things down, not speeding things up. So we needed to make some changes there, some personnel changes, but also we wanted to move 
to a world in which every single person in the business, myself included, was what we called an individual contributor. So you could be a CTO, but you also had to be coding. And you could be the CEO, but you also had to own another part of the day-to-day work. And I think that was actually really good at flattening the organization to make it feel less of a, a hierarchy and allowed us to move a lot faster. I love the fact that it connects with the teams that were flattening the organization so they can see you actually being hands-on. I think one of the most interesting things was it changed the whole idea of a hierarchy because suddenly we had people who had very senior titles prior to that, but because they were individual contributors, they needed to also be a squad member, right? So you could be, Ricardo, say, our VP product was VP product, but he was also the product manager in a specific squad that somebody else more junior to him was leading. So it threw the whole idea of hierarchy and leadership up in the air and said, actually, there are some people who are going to run squads and they're going to be great at managing people. And there are other people who may actually be technically more senior, maybe paid more, maybe have a better title, whatever it may be. And maybe they're not managing people at all. And we found that actually some of the best people in the organization didn't want to manage people that actually this idea that as you get more senior in organization you have to manage more people you know this turned out to be something that people didn't really want not everybody really wanted and some of our best people decided that they simply wanted to just be the best individual contributor that they possibly could do the the solo artist the genius doing you know a very particular bit of work and they were quite happy to be managed by somebody more junior What's striking about what you're saying is the awareness that you as leaders of the business have clearly had to doing things in some ways a new way or doing it in a non-established way, as people would have referred to sort of old school ways of doing this. Do you think that's the key to all of this is that open-mindedness, that approach to you? You talked very early on about humility from the leadership, about understanding where your faults are and acting quickly on them. Is that openness absolutely essential? Can you do this without that openness? It takes a bit of putting ego aside sometimes to recognize that you might not be the best person in a very particular domain. I think probably more importantly for us, the idea of experimentation became quite central. And this is challenging because we all know that actually people can become quite change resistant. And if you Classically, if you do too much change, then people start to feel very insecure and very stressed. And there was definitely a period at flight where there was a lot of change in a very short period. And people were definitely saying, wow, you know, it feels like every time we stand up at all hands, there's something new. But it was important for us to very, very quickly test and learn and find some way of quantifying the results of our experiments in order to be able to make these bigger, bigger changes. And I'm assuming communicating that along the line, let's not say down the line, but along the line, became essential to that success as well. Yes, I think it's important that everybody knows why, why you're doing something. And again, I think post-acquisition, we were able to hook everything very, very centrally around these three KPIs. We were able to say, look, this is all for the benefit of doing these things. But obviously, part of that was also explaining to people that we didn't want to just sit back and take three years to to achieve these things. These were very, very challenging goals. And certainly at the beginning of it, we didn't know that we were going to even make it within three years. And so actually, my co-founder and I, Chris, had sort of said almost post-acquisition immediately, 
that we were going to pick one of these goals and, and show everyone that it was going to be possible to achieve it very quickly. And we made the change in his, he basically took on a tribe, built out that tribe, recruited a new bunch of people globally, remote first reporting to him and took that KPI. And the traction that he demonstrated within three months was sufficient to also then be able to go to the rest of the business and say, look, this is what we think is possible. We want to now do this for everything else as well. And I'm sensing then that the sense of achievement from your tribe members, squad members, is such that they get enormous satisfaction out of the job without realising they've been, in inverted commas, managed in a particular way. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, we all know why do people come to work? Well, they're choosing to spend the only commodity that they have, time. Uh, They're choosing to exchange that time to work for you. They want really a few things in return. They want obviously to be rewarded for that financially because that's why we do work day by day and beyond that they want to feel achievement they want to feel the satisfaction of being part of something they want a sense of meaning and so actually we also knew that the times when people were least happy were the times when it felt that things had slowed down and that we weren't achieving as much And whilst people could very easily get into a comfort zone there and and have safety and security, ultimately, if you just felt that you were trudging through, then you wouldn't really come to work and be motivated and happy and excited by what you were achieving. And so conversely, the the slightly more unstructured, chaotic approach of, of, you know, all the changes that we made, but the velocity of achieving results as a result of it made people a lot happier even though they were dealing with more change and, in theory, more stress as a result. Fantastic. So if I was to try and sum this up in terms of some of the takeaways that we've had from this short conversation, the first thing to think of this performance management is not a negative thing. It's actually a positive thing. It's about developing your talent. It's about enabling the skills, getting the very best performance out of people. That's how best to manage it. And you came at it with the sporting metaphor of the coach, And the fact that you can see the bigger picture, you're trying to get the best out of all the players on the pitch. And at some point, you may have to substitute or replace certain key players within those teams. We talked about honesty, humility, frankness, the ability to look at change from a leader's point of view, being open to that, being able to act on that. Crucially, to be very quick when you do it. I mean, not too quick, but don't dither. You're racing towards a cliff edge here. Make a decision and go with it because that's what the staff will rely on and the consistency. We talked about transparency and communication to staff, be clear about what you've got to do, but always do it with the best intentions of those that are remaining and being clear about how everybody benefits and moving forward. But putting enough time, I think this really resonated, which is put time into this. Don't do this as an add-on. You've got to really put time into it. And then you mentioned the whole Spotify model, which I'm sure people can check out online, which is the whole thing of tribes and squads and teams and squad members and not necessarily having people in a hierarchical structure, but having people leading teams and squads that may be elsewhere in the organization. And that every member of the team from the top downwards has a hands-on role as well as a leadership role, if that's what they currently do. And at the end of that, the the sense of well-being, the sense of achievement gives everybody a reason to bounce out of bed in the morning and come and play for the team. 
a final sporting reflection, if I can. Yeah, which please. Is that I think that again, reverting to the theme of performance. Let's use a slightly different sporting metaphor. And we were talking before we started that you know I'm an avid gym goer and I have a personal trainer. And for many years, I would kind of show up and expect him to effectively own our sessions, that he was leading things and I was the participant. And I never really made much progress in the gym industry. You call that spinning wheels. You're performing, but not really performing at your best. And a massive shift for me came when I decided to shift from what I call an amateur mindset to a pro mindset. I wanted to be the best I could be myself. And I, so I took ownership of my own experience. My coach was there to help me perform best, but actually going to the gym wasn't the end result. Going to the gym was simply to make me perform well outside of the gym. That was the purpose. I was, I was there to be healthy and to be strong and in the times I wasn't at the gym and therefore how I ate and how I slept and how everything I did outside of those one hour sessions actually was more important really than the one hour sessions. And over time, I think the other perspective that we've had on performance management has been that the individuals themselves that are working for you have to take ownership of their own performance, of their own growth, of their own progression, and that you as senior leaders can guide and mentor them. But ultimately the time that you are investing in them, that one hour, the, the one-to-one a week or whatever it may be, isn't enough to take ownership away from them. You're not in control of their destiny. They've got to get the return on investment themselves. So really trying to encourage people to think about performance as being how do they become a pro in their jobs, in their domain? How do they become the best they possibly can be and to own that experience themselves and not try and take that ownership and control away from them and into your own hands because you can't be there for them all the time and actually the important stuff will happen outside of those one-to-ones not in the one-to-ones themselves you can only be the corrective course that's a great insight tom and just before we wrap up i just want to touch on one element of this which we haven't probably discussed fully at the moment the fear of getting into performance management it's an emotive subject isn't it and i think we as humans often struggle with conflict it's very very hard to be in situations that are uncomfortable and antagonistic. I guess there are kind of two types. One is a conflict where you are having to say to someone else that, you know, you don't think they're performing well. And the second is when somebody is telling you that they don't think you're performing well. And both of those can be very challenging as leaders to hear. And often those moments of greater challenge are the hardest parts, I think, of any job, which is how do you say goodbye to somebody gracefully? How do you find somebody gracefully? We always used to send around the amongst our leadership team, there's, there's a clip from the movie Moneyball where they talk about how to transfer people gracefully and not to mess around too much, not to go off on too many tangents and not get to the point, but to be very clear and very direct and not to wrap it up too much, but just to say this is what it is. But obviously all of this gets couched in fear, whether it's standing up in front of your team and having to tell them, hey, things are not going well or whether it's having to let somebody individually go, it can be very, very scary. And the only advice really that I have is that the longer you spend worrying about it, the more scary it will become. So it is better to be decisive and act quickly. The second thing is never underestimate the power of a good deep breath before you walk into that room. I think it's essential to get your own brain in order and just get as much calmness as you can. And I think the more that you project that calmness and 
grace and if necessary the sadness this is not something where it's all going to be happy all the time but you have to be able to show that you're confident and that you're you're making the best changes that you possibly can for everybody and sometimes that comes at the expense of the individual and so i think you've just got to get yourself your own brain in order and to, to do everything you can to walk into that room and do it well well i think that's a great insight to end the podcast on a huge thank you for Tom, who clearly was performing at his very peak. Thank you so much, Tom, for joining us and for giving us your time and sharing your experience and insights. As always, we invite our listeners to share this podcast with their peers and families. This podcast production has been brought to you by Vistage, the world's leading business performance and leadership advancement organisation. And please do tweet us at Vistage UK with your questions and feedback and visit vistage.co.uk for more information. Until next time, I've been Matthew Griffiths. Thank you for listening.